It was about uh, 3,500 years ago that there was a baby born to uh, a Hebrew slave in Egypt. And this baby, the Bible says, was so beautiful that the mother took notice of it right away, like something is different, something is special about this baby. At the time, the Hebrews had been in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years, so a long time, generations had passed. You know, these folks had grown up in slavery in Egypt. And the king, Pharaoh, in Egypt was starting to get worried because the Hebrews were multiplying, as people tend to do, right? And there were lots of them, and they said, you know, if, if, if we let this get out of control, then the Hebrews are just going to take over. They're going to take over Egypt because there's so many of them. And so he ordered, which kind of makes you think about things we heard about in the New Testament when Jesus was born. Pharaoh ordered that all the baby boys that were born that were male should be killed. And so when this baby boy was born to this Hebrew slave, the order of the king was he needs to be killed, but she hid him, and she hid him for three months. And when she couldn't figure out a way to hide him anymore, she made a basket, and she put it out in the river, and she put him in the basket. And I think she was just putting him out there saying, God, I I trust you. You're going to have to figure this out. Um, something's obviously different about this baby, and, and obviously we want to keep him alive. And it was Pharaoh's daughter that was down bathing in the Nile River that saw this basket and said, hey, to her servant, bring that over here. Tell me, what is that? And they brought the basket over, and there's a baby inside it. And so Pharaoh's daughter took him, and she named him Moses. Not a Hebrew name, but an Egyptian name, bringing him out of the water. His name meant to draw out. And I think it's ironic that an Egyptian named Moses to draw out because that's what he was destined to do from birth. That's what God had prepared for him to do was you are the one that's going to draw my people out of Egypt. We're going to get out of slavery. We're going to go back to the promised land, the land that was promised hundreds of years ago. So Moses was the one then that was, that was supposed to do this. I've got a, a good picture of Moses here, a painting from the 1600s. Moses would have grown up uh, then as Pharaoh's grandson. He would have been educated by the finest educators in the land. He would have eaten the best food in the land. He would have been prepared for leadership. Uh, there's, a, there's a Jewish historian in uh, uh, writing about after the time of Jesus' death in the late first century A.D., Flavius Josephus, and he, he has additional commentary on Moses, saying that he was so striking that people would see him and they would stop in the street and stare at him. He was such a unique looking, he was so tall, he was so handsome, people would stop and just like stare at him in the street. So clearly God was with this guy. Something was going on. And it's what makes where the story goes so interesting. But I want to take a little bit of a diversion here, and I want to think about something here. Look at this picture painted in 1603. When we see a picture of Moses like this, do you emotionally connect with this? Isn't it hard to look at these old images like this and think, this is a, this is a modern person, right? 
Isn't it true that everyone who has ever lived throughout all of history has always been modern? You know, we think of ourselves as modern. Uh, In Moses' time, 3,500 years ago, he was modern too. Modern is just today, right? But I think we have this prejudice. There's lots of prejudices in the world. I think we have this prejudice of time in addition to the other ones that exist. This idea that we are modern, we are sophisticated And that everybody else is like a country bumpkin. You know, everybody else, these people that lived hundreds of years ago, pictures like this. I mean, do you emotionally connect with this or does it just make you think this is this old fuddy-duddy guy? You know, I can't can't understand what his life was like. He certainly wouldn't understand what my life was like. You know, he didn't have an iPhone. Today we'd hold our iPhone up above our heads, right? You know, I think it's debatable whether iPhones make us more or less intelligent. You know, sometimes you're looking at a video on your phone, you can feel your IQ leaking out your ear. So I think sometimes these images are a little bit deceptive. You know, I I, I pulled up a couple things, you know, Mark Twain. Do we connect with Mark Twain? He's certainly more modern than Moses. When I see a color picture of him, all of a sudden he seems like a more real modern human being, doesn't he? So I think sometimes when we're thinking about stories in the Bible, when we're reading these stories, when we're talking about these people, we just have to understand we have this bias. Maybe it's an unconscious bias. I think to talk about it helps to make it a conscious bias, which means you can maybe overcome it. You know, let's think about this as Moses. This guy looks fairly modern. I found this on a a website advertising haircuts. So... (laughs) He's got a pretty good haircut, I think. I wish I could grow a beard like that. I've tried. It doesn't work. So let's think about, when we think about Moses, this guy is Moses. Okay, so where does the story go? Moses was prepared for leadership. He was this guy that was so impressive, people would stop on the street and stare at him when he walked by. He knew from the beginning, I'm sure he was raised and and told and it was explained to him, you are the guy that God is going to use to bring us out of Egypt. It's time for all this to happen. And the Bible tells us, actually in the New Testament, when he was 40 years old, he saw a Hebrew being mistreated by an Egyptian, which I'm sure was an everyday occurrence. You know, the Hebrews were the slaves. They were the workers at the time. And he killed the Egyptian And when he knew that people had found out that he had done this, he ran away. And he ran quite a ways away, out into the desert, to the east. And he was there for a long time, you know, upwards of 40 years. He he screwed up, and he ran away, right? So he's living out here. He's tending sheep. This guy that was so impressive this guy that was trained to be a leader by the best educators in the world at the time was tending sheep out in the desert. And think about it. I mean, think about how would you feel in that situation? You know, God prepared me to do this thing, right? And I screwed up. And it's over. God's not going to use me anymore. And I'm just going to hang out here in the desert with my sheep and what happens? You know, we all know the story. There, there's a bush that's on fire. It's not going out. He's like, I wonder what's going on with this. He goes over to the bush. It turns out God is in the bush. And God's message to him is, it's time to do something about this. It's time to get back in the game. 
It's time to go do the thing that I made you to do. It's time to go and bring the people out of Egypt. And what does is, what is Moses do? He argues with God. I can't do that. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I can't speak. I'm, you know, he's arguing that he's not a good leader. All the things that he was made to do, all the things that we know he was good at. But he had convinced himself, I think, living 40 years in the desert, this dream is over and God is not going to use me. And I just, I give up. I'm done with this. And I think one of the most interesting features of this story is when, you know, God speaks to him out of the bush and he says, I'm God, I'm the God of your fathers. And he says, take off your shoes, take off your sandals because the ground on which you're standing is holy. And I've thought a lot about that over the years. What was that all about? Is that some cultural thing? Or why do you take off your shoes because the ground is holy? Well, if you think about it, I mean, holy is something that is pure. Holy is something that is right before God. And in this scene, you've got Moses. I mean, this guy right here, Moses, he's standing there and God says, the ground is holy. Well, the ground was designed by God. The ground is doing what God designed it to do. The ground is always holy, isn't it? Isn't everything, you know, the animal kingdom is holy. Everything in this whole scene with Moses is holy except Moses, right? He's the one who sinned. He's the one who has disappointed God, who has done the thing that God didn't want him to do. So Moses is the only thing in this scene that is not holy. And I think the reason God said, take off your shoes, is because he wanted him to touch what is holy. Why would God want him to do that? God wanted him to take off his shoes and with his bare feet, touch what is holy. And I think he was saying, Moses, it's time to, you know, not forget about the past, but to understand you need to move past that. My grace is sufficient for that. It's time to get back in the game. So with all of that leading in, I want to talk about this breakfast on the beach scene with Jesus and Peter. And as we go through this, I want you to think about this, this time prejudice. Think about if I was Peter and I'm going through this story, how do I feel? What, what's going on inside Peter? How does he feel during this? Put yourself in his shoes. So again, Peter, right? But I don't want to think about Peter this way. I want to think about him this way, you know, from, from the chosen. I think Peter is the one on the left. So think about him as a real person. Think about if, if I was Peter, he's got the same depth of emotion I have, the same intellect I have. He feels deeply about things the way that I do. And just enter into that, enter into the emotion of the story. And I think you get something more out of the story when you do that. I actually contemplated because, you know, Jesus had renamed Peter. His name was Simon originally. Jesus renamed him Peter, which means the rock. And I thought about putting a picture of the rock up there, but I decided, you know, maybe that would be a distraction. So, so let's go back and let's think about what happened? What's our context coming up to John chapter 21? Um, something that I did in doing this, again, that I think will make it more, make you connect more with this. Did you know you can scroll on your phone all the way back to AD 30 and put stuff on your calendar? <laughs> so, 
So I went, it took me about five minutes to scroll all the way back, all the way back to 8030. And obviously there's disputes about what year, was it 8030, was it 33, whatever. I mean, I, I don't get into the details of that, but just the idea that think about, you know, these are events that happened. If they had had phones back then, they probably would have put the Last Supper on their phone and sent invites out so people would have known you need to show up on time. So let's look at this here. You've got the Passover is coming. You know, the Passover was what happened when Moses took the people out of Egypt, right? It was, it was this big deal um, for the Israelites. And so they celebrated this festival every year. It was a week long. Everybody would come to Jerusalem. It was going to be a big celebration of God's faithfulness to the people. So this Last Supper is leading up to the Passover meal. So the next day, the Thursday evening is when the Passover would start. It was sundown Thursday to sundown the next Thursday, so a week-long festival. So their, their supper, the Last Supper, would have been late that evening. And then it talks about how after that, you know, during that supper, that was when it was indicated that Judas was going to betray Jesus. During that supper, it was Peter saying, you know, they all got into an argument about who's the greatest of all of us, right? And Jesus said, you know, the greatest one needs to be the servant. And Peter said, he said he was going to, Jesus said he was going to die. And Peter said, uh, I'll go with you to death. And Jesus told him, look, you know, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Jesus, he, he didn't believe what Jesus said, but he would soon enough. All right, so next day, so think about Gethsemane. You know, Jesus is praying. Um, he's asking people to stay up late with him and pray, and they're falling asleep, and all these things happen. Gethsemane then is where the Roman guards come, and they take Jesus away, and Judas does betray him. And so in the middle of the night is when this denial would have happened. You know, the Bible talks about there being a charcoal fire that was lit, and they were all kind of warming themselves around this fire in the middle of the night, and people were like, hey, that guy, I saw him with Jesus. And then three times, uh, people say, Peter, you were with Jesus, and he says, no, I'm not. And the third time, he even swore. It said he's, he said it with an oath. I mean, he cussed. He said, I, I was not with this guy. And it says immediately, you know, the sun was coming up, the rooster crowed, which they tend to do at that time of the morning, and immediately he realized, that's what Jesus said I was going to do, and I did it, and he took off. And I, I see these parallels then to Moses. You know, Moses sinned, he did what was wrong, and he ran away. And Peter, we don't really know where he was during all this time, but he denied Jesus. And then fairly shortly thereafter, Jesus is dead. And all of this, you know, all of this that's happened, you know, the call on Peter's life, all this excitement, you know, this part of this ministry that he's been a part of for three years, it's all just like washed away. And it's hard to imagine how he was feeling at this time. But I think if you, if you really think about how you would feel, you can enter into that. So you get to Sunday, and a few days later, Jesus is back. And they hear these rumors, he's back. And they go and they find him. And then he even that evening visits his disciples. And they see that this is really him. He's really back. 
But if I'm Peter, I, you know, it's, it's just a couple days later, I'm thinking, he told me I was going to deny him. He is back, but he knows, he knows I did this. He knows when is he going to say something? What is he going to say when he finally confronts me about this? So you get to, you know, maybe the next week. They would have hung around for that week. And then when the Passover was done, everybody would have dispersed and gone back to their homes. And the Bible tells us that it was 40 days from when Jesus was raised until he went back to heaven. So during that 40-day period, all these other events happened that, that talk about, you know, things he did, people that he saw, Road to Emmaus that Brett talked about last week. Um, all these other things are happening, but we get to this story, and I'm just going to start reading it, and we're just going to talk about what happens in the story. So afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, Galilee up north. So if Jerusalem was the cool place to be in Israel, Galilee was the sticks. You know, Galilee was the country, it was a rural area, Uh, The sophisticated people, just maybe like today, the sophisticated people view themselves as living in the city, and out in the country, you had Galilee, and you had people working for a living, real people working for a living out there. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So a lot of the 12 disciples were together together. They had gone back to Galilee. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Peter is the one then that says, I I think I'm just going to go fishing. You know, Jesus had called him way back when, three years ago, Jesus had found these guys fishing, right? And had told them, you know, that he he ran into him in the morning. Jesus was speaking to crowds like he often did. And when he ran into him, he said, throw your net. You know, have you caught anything all night? And they said, no. He said, throw your net out and you'll catch some fish. And they, they caught so many fish that they couldn't even bring them in and their boats were sinking. And Peter immediately realized there's something different about this guy. And Jesus said, follow me. And it says they left everything and they followed him. So for three years, they followed this Jesus. And now Peter says, I'm going out to fish. You know, he didn't say, Jesus gave us this mission. We need to go complete the mission, don't we? He said, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. Fishing is what I know how to do. I think I'll just go back to fishing, right? That's where we're at in the story. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was him. So creating some tension in the story, there's somebody on the shore. We know it's Jesus, but they don't. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No. You know, that's, that's when you get the meme face, you know, the like, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm resentful of the question. They've worked all night. They haven't caught any fish. Fishermen at that time fished at night, and I think it probably, well, we know that the fish are more active at night typically. They had more chance of catching them, and I think it was also probably a lack of sunblock. They had not yet invented sunblock, so fishing at night made maybe a little bit more sense. So he's jabbing at them. He probably knows they haven't caught any fish. 
And so he's jabbing at him a little bit. But it goes right back to when he called these guys, what had happened. They had been out fishing all night. They hadn't caught any fish. And what happened? He said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of a large number of fish. So very similar situation. And you can see the disciples, you know, the wheels are turning. They're like, uh, we've seen this before. This has happened before. I remember this. This must be Jesus. And true to form, you know, then the disciple who Jesus loved, who is John, who wrote this, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and some bread. So Peter gets excited, as is a consistent picture of him throughout the New Testament, that he's the excitable one. He gets fired up. He jumps in the water. He doesn't take off his shirt and jump in the water. He puts it on for some reason and jumps in the water and swims to shore. So he comes to shore dripping wet, and what's there? There's a charcoal fire. The only other time that this is referred to in the Bible is the charcoal fire that was lit after Gethsemane that Jesus, or that, sorry, that Peter was standing around when he denied Jesus three times. The only other time it shows up in the Bible. So there's a fire lit there, and Jesus has made breakfast for them. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and they did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So again, in this story, you are Peter. What are you thinking? We're on the shore. I can smell the charcoal burning. This reminds me of my denial of Jesus. What is he going to say? You know, aren't you just dying at this point? As the story slowly goes through and even goes to the point of telling you they caught 153 fish, it's like it's slowing the story down and building the tension because the idea here is, what is Jesus going to say to me? You know, when is he going to confront me about this? I don't want to bring it up. Uh, But isn't Jesus going to say something at some point? Eventually he does, when they had finished eating. So they've gone through this whole thing and they've eaten dinner. And if you're Peter, I think you are just on the edge of your seat. You know, you're wondering, what is Jesus going to say? And what does he say? Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. So they're done eating And Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Wasn't his name Peter? Doesn't it even say there, when they had finished, Jesus said to Peter, and what did he say to him? He said, Simon, son of John. He had been renamed Peter by Jesus because of his statement of faith. Peter had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, And Jesus had said to him, 
Yes, you're right, and God revealed that to you, and you're going to now be known as Peter, which in Greek means the rock, because on this rock I will build my church. On this statement of faith, that was what the church would be built on. So why is Jesus calling him Simon? It's because he went back to fishing, right? He was Peter. God had renamed him Peter not so he could go back to just being who he was before, but so that he'd be transformed into something else, so that he would be, you know, the leader of this new church that God was instituting. They'd be filled with the Spirit, and they'd go out, and they would, they would preach the message, and they would fulfill the mission that God had given them. And so I think Jesus is saying this because he's saying, Simon, are you going to go back to being Simon? Are you really just going to go back to fishing and go back to being Simon Do you really think that you've screwed up that bad? Because I think that is what Peter thought. Isn't that what we would think? We would think so. So Jesus says, do you love me? You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. What is feed my lambs? That's the mission. Go out and do the thing I gave you to do. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Three times we go through this. There were three denials, and three times Jesus says this. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So three times, one for each denial, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, are you going to go back to fishing? Or are you going to feed my sheep? Are you going to do the thing I gave you to do? Are you going to fulfill the mission I gave you? And then in the end, he even, this is the very last truly, truly statement, you know, that when Jesus said that, we've talked about that over the last several weeks, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he was saying, pay attention, this is a big deal. So not only was he restoring Peter to the ministry that he had given him, you know, he was, he was telling him, you're going you're gonna to stir things up so much that they're going to have to kill you to make you stop. So he was also telling Peter, you're going to go back into the ministry, and your ministry is going to be so effective that the only way they're going to be able to stop you is to kill you. Not that there's going to be anything fun or exciting about that, but that, that would have been, I think, something that Peter would have latched onto and said, this ministry I know is going to be effective. So I, I think as Christians, you know, as followers of Jesus— we get into this situation where we feel like we've screwed up. You know, I know there are people in this room that feel this way. You feel like, I've screwed up, I've made mistakes, I've sinned, and because of my sin, God is not going to use me anymore. And I think both of these stories speak against that. You know, we as good Americans, we're looking for you know, A, B, C, D, F, what do I get in Christianity? Am I getting an A? Am I getting a C? 
am I getting an F? And if I'm getting an F in Christianity, if I'm not following all the rules and doing all the right things, then, you know, God isn't going to use me anymore. And so God doesn't take us out of the game, but like Peter and like Moses, we take ourselves out of the game. You know, we put ourselves on the bench. That really isn't what God has called us to do. When, uh, back when, when Tim retired uh, back in September, he called me and he said, you know, we're putting this, I'm going to retire and we're putting this speaking team together and we'd like you to be a part of it. And we had a long conversation about this, about this very topic. Because, you know, the older I get, the unworthier I feel. That's just a fact. You know, the, more, the older you get, the more opportunity to screw things up you have, right? And hopefully you're figuring some things out and maybe doing some things better. But, you know, I've always felt like if people say they have no regrets, they're just not paying attention, right? So... The, the older I get, the more I feel like I'm, I'm not worthy to get up and tell people what to do, to get up and talk about God. And the reality is nobody who's ever stood up here has ever been worthy to do this kind of thing. But you have to do the thing that God has called you to do. And God is sufficient for that. God's grace is bigger than your sin. And that's what these two stories tell us. In closing, I want to talk a little bit about Paul's perspective on this. So Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And let's, let's think about Paul for a second. Paul was a murderer. Paul was out killing Christians before God called him. Multiple people, you know, maybe we would call him a mass murderer. So not a great guy. And yet God got a hold of him and said, you are the one that I'm going to have take this message to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. And God got a hold of him and completely changed his life, changed his heart. And this is what Paul told the Ephesians. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Not by anything you did. It's by grace. It's just because God wanted to do it because he loves you. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. So think about this this way. You have lived your life in whatever way you've lived it. And God, through this, through this thing that Paul wrote, God is saying, you know, someday... When all this is done, when all the work is done, and everybody's in heaven, and the new heaven and the new earth, and every, all this other stuff is gone, all the sin is gone, God is going to hold you up in front of everybody and say, look, look at this. Look at this person that I made. Isn't this beautiful? They did everything they could possibly do to mess up my plan and to screw up their life, and yet I brought them through it. I made this person the thing that I wanted them to be. That is where you're going. You know, if you are in Christ, that is your end game. And the message for you today from Moses and from Peter is get back to the mission. Get back in the game. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you that you reinstated Peter, that you reinstated Moses, and that your grace for them was greater than their sin, and that your grace for us is so much greater than anything we could do. You said, Lord, that you were going to do a good work in us and that you wouldn't stop until you had completed it. And I pray that for those in Christ that you would complete it and that for those who haven't met you yet, that they would meet you and that you would complete them too. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.